It's the 365 Days of Astronomy podcast. Coming in three, two, one. Hi, this is Steve Nerlick from Cheap Astronomy. Why, 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 why cheap astronomy? Yeah, why? And this is Dear Cheap Astronomy, episode 53, Hot Stuff. As most regular listeners would know, we do tend to go to extremes in this podcast. All the way from absolute zero, zero, Kelvin, to absolute hot which is 1.4 times 10 to the power of 32 Kelvin. Today, we're just dealing with some pretty hot stuff that's somewhere in the middle of all that. Dear Cheap Astronomy, How hot do black hole accretion disks get? This question follows on from a previous Dear Cheap Astronomy on the temperature of black holes. But it's worth noting there are all sorts of accretion disks out there. Accretion disks can form around any dense centre of mass with sufficient gravity to draw in surrounding matter. As that matter falls inwards, it is constrained within a smaller volume, creating collisions and frictional interactions. All that creates heat, and the congestion of infalling material forces that material into an inspiraling orbit, hence creating the appearance of a disk. Nonetheless, that material is falling inwards, occupying progressively lower orbits as its angular momentum is lost in the form of heat due to all the collisions and the friction. An average protoplanetary disk does heat up during the period in which most of it eventually spirals into its star, with any planets formed representing the scant remains that were left behind when the disk had lost too much density for angular momentum to be further lost in collisions and heating. So since that remaining material couldn't unload its angular momentum, it just stayed in the same orbit around the star. But moving beyond simple stellar systems, if you keep upping the scale, so that you make a black hole the centre of mass, and you also scale up the amount of raw material that's available to fall into it, then you will start getting much more dramatic effects. Most of the black holes that we know about, we know about because they radiate X-rays from their accretion disks. Of course, there may be many more black holes out there that don't have accretion disks, and hence don't radiate anything and hence we don't know whether they're actually there or not, but that is another story. We think the hottest accretion disks of all are found around quasars, which are supermassive black holes that are consuming large proportions of the galaxies that they reside in. Quasars are mostly found in very distant parts of the universe, which is another way of saying they are mostly found in very early parts of the universe. It may be that a younger, more compact and denser universe has a greater propensity to make really big and really hot accretion disks. Nonetheless, the closest quasar to us, 
Makarian 231 is only 600 million light years away, so isn't really all that old. But just how hot are these quasars? We can only estimate their temperature from the radiation we receive on Earth, adjusted for any redshift that may be imposed upon very distant objects. So, for example, we routinely pick up quasars with radio telescopes since much of their original energy output has been redshifted to radio frequencies. Nonetheless, we can readily estimate that their peak emissions were in the X-ray range when emitted. The general principle of heat and light, where red is hot but blue is hotter, applies across the whole electromagnetic spectrum, where the hotter something is, the shorter the wavelength of its peak emission. So if something does have peak emission wavelengths in X-rays, you can be sure those things are going to be pretty darned hot anywhere in the range of 300,000 Kelvin to 300 million Kelvin. For your average quasar, we think that the temperature of the innermost parts of their accretion disks probably approach 80 million Kelvin. So yep, that is pretty darned hot. But just like how the coldest place in the universe is probably the cold atom lab aboard the International Space Station, the hottest place in the universe is probably in the Large Hadron Collider, where we can generate temperatures similar to those prevalent a few micro-moments after the Big Bang, when the universe was filled with quark gluon soup. Of course, those sort of temperatures only last for a moment, and only occur within a very tiny volume. So if you are looking for a very large volume of stuff that remains very hot over a very long time period, then you can't go past quasar accretion disks. This is the middle bit. So the universe is mostly cold, dark vacuum interspersed by some frighteningly hot spots which mostly lie at vast distances from each other. Closer to home, we do have a moderately hot star that keeps us all alive, and there's a bit more practical science and engineering involved in getting to know it better. Dear Cheap Astronomy, how will the Parker Solar Probe work? The Parker Solar Probe will launch in August 2018. Since it's already in orbit around the Sun, it will get closer by modifying its solar orbit with the help of gravity assist using Venus as a pivot point. Coming from Earth naturally gives you a solar orbital velocity of 30 kilometers a second and a 365 and a quarter day orbital period. Kepler's third law is all that stuff about the square of the orbital period and the cube of the semi-major axis, but basically says that you have to move a lot faster to maintain a close orbit than you do to maintain a distant orbit. So the Parker probe needs to shift from a 365-day solar orbit to a faster 88-day solar orbit. But to achieve that, the Parker probe has to decelerate to decay its Earth-equivalent orbit. Rather than burning lots of fuel to decelerate, the Parker probe will fly the wrong way past Venus 
so that Venus's gravitational drag slows it down. The Parker probe's first Venus flyby is planned for October 2018, and its first perihelion, where it passes close to the Sun, is planned for November 2018. The mission involves 24 solar orbits in total, including seven Venus flybys, with each of those flybys modifying the Parker probe's orbit a little more, so its perihelion gets closer and closer to the Sun each time. Perihelions 22, 23 and 24, coming after the seventh Venus flyby, will be the really close-in ones. It's unclear what the plan is after Perihelion 24, which is scheduled to take place in June 2025. What happens from there will depend upon the condition of the ship and its fuel reserves. And really, given the perilous nature of the mission, we're not totally confident the spacecraft will survive to Perihelion 25, although everyone is optimistic. On the closest passes planned, the spacecraft will fly through the Sun's corona to within 6.2 million kilometres of the photosphere of the Sun, which is essentially its surface. The Parker probe will have to face 520 times the incident solar intensity that we experience in Earth orbit, which will mean it experiences temperatures of about 1400 degrees Celsius which is hot enough to melt steel. Of course, the Parker probe will have a heat shield. It's not made of vibranium, but the next best and real thing, reinforced carbon-carbon. Reinforced carbon-carbon is carbon fibre reinforced with graphite, which is, you know, carbon, hence the name. Without its heat shield, all the delicate parts of the Parker Probe spacecraft and its scientific instruments would last for about a tenth of a second when it's close to the sun. But carbon is not only lightweight, but in pure form is also the most refractory material known, which means it can maintain its structural integrity at very high temperatures indeed in carbon's case, up to 4,000 degrees Celsius. And carbon also has quite low thermal conductivity, so when its surface is exposed to high temperature, that heat will spread only slowly throughout its structure. Nonetheless, matter is matter, and any material exposed to unrelenting heat is eventually going to equilibrate to that same temperature. And even if that temperature is not hot enough to destroy the heat shield, that heat will eventually be conducted through to the rest of the spacecraft. But remember that the Parker probe's orbits are highly elliptical, coming in close to the Sun at perihelion, but then swinging way back out to Venus at aphelion. So at each perihelion, the Parker probe will be moving at its maximal orbital speed of around 200 kilometres a second, before it pulls away, adopting a more leisurely pace back to Venus, giving it plenty of time to cool down again before the next perihelion. This is why the Parker probe is being touted as the fastest machine ever built. 
way faster than New Horizons rocket-assisted 23 kilometers a second and way faster than Juno's 74 kilometer a second plunge into Jupiter's gravity well. Although again, ironically, to achieve this record-breaking feat, the Parker probe will have to decelerate first. You've got to love astrophysics. This is the end bit. And of course, you've got to love orbital mechanics. And you've got to love these modestly large G-type stars. Even though there are vastly more ginormous and hotter stars out there, they are probably too hot and stellarly unstable to support any kind of evolution, since they generally go supernova within a billion years or so, which is barely enough time for planets to accrete and start cooling down. Steve. Oh, hi, Bridget. Steve, the new microphone. It's disturbing. Disturbing? It echoes. Well, I'm experimenting with a new approach. It's like a journey that we're all undertaking together. It echoes and it's kind of nasal. At least it's more nasal than you usually sound. Right. I'll need some more sticky tape for the old headset then. It's no one else's fault that you won't pay for proper equipment. I just forked out big time to buy this stupid microphone. On eBay. Fine. So can I just finish this stupid episode with this stupid cheap microphone? Yes, please, finish it. Yeah. So, I was talking about getting close to the sun and... This is where you generally make one of your jokes. Yeah. Well, okay then. So, it's pretty cool, small astronomy joke there, that we're really starting to get to know our own star less than 5 billion years after it allowed our planet to form and for us to evolve, learn how to bang the rocks together and then collect data. Steve Nerlich, Cheap Astronomy. You are listening to the 365 Days of Astronomy podcast. The 365 Days of Astronomy podcast is produced by the Planetary Science Institute. Audio post production by Richard Drum. Bandwidth donated by Libsyn.com and Wizard Media. You may reproduce and distribute this audio for non-commercial purposes. This show is made possible thanks to the generous donations of people like you. Please consider supporting our show on Patreon.com forward slash 365 Days of Astronomy and get access to bonus content. After 10 years, the 365 Days of Astronomy podcast is entering its second decade of sharing important milestones in space exploration and astronomy discoveries. Join us and share your story. Until tomorrow, goodbye.